Well, let's turn in our Bibles, if you would, to what's called the General Epistle of James. We told you a few weeks ago that it would be my desire when we finished up the series we're in, uh, at least sometime in the future, to do a series of sermons upon James. And that's what I am attempting to do and will do for the next few months or more as we will be looking to this epistle. So this morning then we want to begin our series of sermons upon the epistle of James. And what I'm going to do today is that we'll use the title and the first verse uh, as the beginning of a two-part introduction to this letter or to this epistle. So let's begin reading there. It says here, the general epistle of James, as our authorized version reads it. And then chapter 1 and verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. Well, let's begin where we see it begins in our text, and that, of course, is the title And whether you think these are part of Holy Writ or not makes no difference because I'm going to go through it anyway. But we see, first of all, the title that is given to our Bible in our authorized version is the General Epistle of James. And uh, the word epistle, for those of you who may not know this, I'm sure most of you do, so I'm just trying to cover all my bases here, so to speak. The word epistle, young folks, means a letter. So it's just simply a letter. You could read that, the general letter. Of James, if you like, and so that's all the word epistle means. It just means it's a letter. It's uh, the writer of this portion of God's word has written a letter or an epistle to those who are addressed there in verse one. Just as if you were to sit down and uh, write you a letter to someone, you could also, if you wanted to sound like the authorized version, you could say, "I am now writing an epistle to my friend or to my mother or my father or such as that." Or to my brother and my sister, so to speak. So, that's all we're talking about here when we see the word epistle. It just simply means letter. It is used throughout uh, many places in the New Testament. And uh, he also uses the word letter, so it is interchangeable. So, But in this particular place, we do see it as the epistle, or the general epistle of James. Secondly, it's called general. Notice that, the general epistle of James. Or, yeah, the general epistle of James. There are several books of the Bible, New Testament books in particular, that go under that phrase general or that name general. And it's general because it's not written to any particular persons, such as uh, the epistle to Timothy, that's written to a person, or to Titus, that's written to an individual, or to Second John, for instance, who is written to Gaius. Nor is it written to a particular church gathered somewhere in a particular city. For instance, uh, the church at Corinth, you remember, received two epistles from uh, from, uh, Paul. And also, for instance, the uh, church at Thessalonica also uh, received two letters from the Apostle Paul. Those were specific letters, you see, and not in any kind of a sense of a general. But here, the word here, actually it's the word where we get the word Catholic for that matter, but it just simply means a general in the sense that there is no particular persons itself who are uh, written to, but it is a general epistle or general letter to people at large. And if you notice the text, it says there, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. So again, it's no particular individual, no particular body of individuals gathered in a particular church, though, of course, it would apply to those kinds of situations. But it's just those scattered abroad. Look in First uh, Peter chapter 1. We see the same kind of language, but here we actually see some of the places that they're actually scattered unto. First uh, Peter, which again, you'll notice it's the first epistle general of Peter. So again, that name is there. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So those were... This epistle was going out to those folks who were in those particular provinces there in the Roman Empire. Secondly, the date. Uh, well, we don't see one. You'll notice, in, uh, of course, if you have an older Bible or in certain versions of the Bible, you'll do see dates that uh, men have put in there. But as far as the scriptures themselves, we don't see a date. Uh, but some have given it a date around 60 A.D. or so. You can either place it before the fall of Jerusalem or you can face, place it after the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, either one would fit as far as that goes, depending on how you would view the idea of why they are scattered abroad. And we'll touch on that here in just a few moments. But since it's not listed, it's really no big deal, is it? Or it would have been in the Scripture. He would have put in there so many years after this or so many years after that, as sometimes we do find dates in the Scripture. You don't necessarily find numbers in the Scripture. You would find, for instance, events seven years after the Great Flood or after the Great Dispersion or something of that note. But here we see absolutely nothing, and thus the Holy Spirit then was pleased not to allow us to know the exact date of the letter. Thus, then, there is no real profit if we spend all the time trying to figure out the particular day and time of this epistle. Now, one of the other things, the third thing, is the writer. Well, that's kind of easy. Uh, we can see that it's James, the general epistle of James. And he says here in the very beginning, in verse 1, James, a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, as we see from the Scripture here, that it was James. But if we, again, know anything of Scripture, we know that James is just simply the human writer. The divine author is none other than God Himself. As this is the Word of God, thus it is given by inspiration. And as Scripture tells us, all Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for certain things. It is found in our Bibles and thus, it will be concluded, as far as I'm concerned, a part of the canon or part of the Word of God. You can read all the commentaries and the books on this epistle, and you will see a flood of whys and why-nots on this issue, whether the book of James really deserves a place in Holy Scripture. Most, though, we'd have to admit, are for it being part of the canon, and by the word canon there, we mean the rule or the whole body of Scripture. Uh, the history of this epistle is rather interesting, though I'm not going to get into it today. But it is rather interesting that as far as how it was accepted and when it was accepted and all that kind of thing. But this is not the place nor the time uh, to go in that sort of thing. Uh, we believe it's part of the Bible and thus that's the way we leave it. And when you read or when you study about this particular issue, it boils down really 
to this. Someone quoting someone about something saying that this is really belonging in God's word. And so really, it's just simply the opinion of somebody else. And I, it, I just don't understand how that you can take erring men to prove unerring scripture. And that's what people do. But that sounds intelligent. And so you have to do it that way. But if you, again, so if you're planning on writing a, an epistle or a commentary on James, you'll have to read all the Orthodox people and all the heretics as well, just so you can sound like you're being scholarly. Well, again, we're going to be humble here this morning and realize that it is the Word of God and we accept it, not because somebody quoted somebody else who quoted somebody else who thought maybe that this ought to belong in the Scripture. We do so because... It is in the Word of God. We receive it as Scripture because when we open our Bibles, there we see the epistle of James. And brethren, I can no more stand here this morning and prove to you that James itself belongs in the Bible any more than I can turn you to the book of Genesis and tell you by unfallible proofs that that belongs, infallible proofs, that that belongs in the Word of God. Or for that matter, any particular book of the Bible, or for that matter, any particular sentence, phrase, or even words that truly and really belong there. Well, we do so because it's part of the Bible. You say, well, that's circular reasoning. I'll have to live with it, and so will you, because that's really all we have to go by in, in the reality of things. I was asked the other day in an email, do I believe what we would call the Genesis account of creation and uh, that sort of thing, and not the Big Bang Theory. And, and he summed it up, well, I guess it's really sola fide, which means faith alone. And I haven't written it back yet. But yes, that's exactly how we would have to look at it. It is by faith alone that we believe whatever the Scripture says and whatever Scripture is. We have to recognize that it is the Word of God because the author of the Word of God is God Himself. Again, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. It is a thus saith the Lord. So, the book or the epistle of James is here, and there we're going to believe it, and there we'll leave it. Uh, that is in the Bible. And I realize Luther, you remember, his, at least they all say Luther said it, that he didn't necessarily believe that this epistle belonged in the Scripture because of the supposedly contrast between James and Paul on the issue of justification. And so it is reported that Luther didn't think it belonged in the Bible. He called it, I think, a right strawy epistle. And, uh, but later on he did say, whether you can find that quote or not, Whitaker says it doesn't belong in there. He never really said it. It's just the pap- uh, papist. Uh, given us that. Others say it really is in his 1528 Lutheran Bible, which I can't read German, so I don't know. And uh, so there you have it. It doesn't matter what Luther thought anyway, is it? Again, you're just quoting somebody else to find out whether it's the Bible or not. Well, again, you're quoting a fallible source to prove an infallibility. And you can't do that. Well, who's the writer? The human writer, as we said already, that's an easy one. It's James. Here's where the difficulty comes in. Which James? There are several James that are mentioned in the New Testament. There is James, that's John's brother, you remember, the sons of Zebedee. 
uh, he was martyred or killed in uh, Acts chapter 12. And some say, well, this epistle then is too late for that particular James. And so he most of the time is ruled out as being one of the uh, being the author of this epistle. There is a James who is the son of Alphaeus. Uh, you remember he was one of the apostles. He was one of those who was chosen by Jesus Christ himself to be that immediate uh, flock that followed the Lord around, who were apostles, who were disciples. He's also the brother to Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but another Judas. Uh, also, he's probably the brother, or that particular one is the brother of Jude, because he says over in the book of Jude... Verse 1 of chapter 1, which is, that's all there is. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, and you notice this, and brother of James. Well, again, what James are we talking about? Is it James, the son of Alphaeus, or this particular James here? And then, there's another James. There is James, who is the Lord's brother. Uh, By the way, Jesus truly did have brothers and sisters. I know that the teaching among some is that Mary never had any other children after the Lord Jesus, but that's just not true. Jesus is called the firstborn. He's never called the onlyborn. He's the firstborn, thus very definitely implying, because of other scriptures we can say this, there is an inference that that means there were second and third and fourthborn children if Jesus is the firstborn. But in the book of Galatians, chapter 1, now, I'm going to bring application to all this, so it's not just some dreary little thing we're looking at right now, though maybe it may seem that way at the moment, but I do have application to this point that we're looking at this. Uh, But in Galatians 1, in verse 19, Paul's speaking of this. He says, but of other of the apostles, this is after Paul had received the revelation of Jesus Christ, uh, that he was to preach Uh, the gospel to men. And so he takes off. It says he didn't go to Jerusalem, verse 17, but he went into Arabia. And then after that, he went into Damascus. And after so many years, three that we see in verse 18, he goes to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. But other of the apostles saw I none. And then he did tell us who he did see that saved James. Notice the Lord's brother. So, the Lord Jesus did have a brother, or a half-brother here, and it was James. Uh, Mark 6 and verse 3, though it doesn't speak of James in particular, but notice what the people say in regards to Jesus and what he's doing and how he's preaching. They're kind of astonished at all of what he is doing those that know the Lord. And verse 3, it says there in Mark 6, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joses, and of Judah and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. So look, Jesus here has brothers and sisters, according to God's Word. Matthew 13 Verse, I hope I got this right. 55. Yes. Here again, they say basically the same thing. Is not this the carpenter's son? Notice here, a lot of people put Joseph dead by this time. But it, from this language in verse 55, it would appear 
that Joseph is still alive, at least that's the way it looks to me, is not, was this the, car, you know, ex-carpenter, but is not this the carpenter's son? That is, they would have known that that was Joseph. Is not his mother called Mary? And his brethren, notice again, James, Joses, and Simon, and Judas. So here we have it. And then also in John 2, we see some other references that the Lord had brothers and sisters uh, from Mary. And also, we could all say, well, are there other James? There may well be. We're just not dividing them all up necessarily. But most commentators, though, if you want to go back quoting people, which may not mean a lot, but most commentators, when they try to pick who this is, the majority say it is James, the brother of the Lord. Now, why do they say this? Well, here's the main reason why. Because they are quoting someone who quoted someone else who said that it was James, the Lord's brother. So, you can take that for what it's worth if you want to believe it's James, the Lord's brother. Now, they say it is. They say it's the same James who was at the council in Acts 15. They say it's the same one who had met with Paul just before he was taken by the Jews and the Romans there at the temple in the latter part of the book of Acts. But whichever or whoever this was, he says here, notice the point here, uh, one of the points, is that this James, whether an apostle or whether a brother of the Lord himself, notice, he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he styles himself here. He doesn't say, I'm an apostle, so listen up. Apparently, he does not, if he is an apostle, he doesn't have to defend his apostleship as John, uh, Paul does in many places because of his enemies. Here it seems to be accepted if that is him. Or if it is the Lord's brother, here again, he doesn't toot his own horn saying, hey, I am the Lord's brother. But notice, it is just a plain and humble servant who is writing this epistle. Now, you would think... If you were an apostle or if you were the brother of James, wow, you would think uh, it would be something to uh, stick in the letter and make everybody know about. Somehow get it out, you know, that I happen to be half-brother of Jesus or, by the way, I happen to be an apostle. But he doesn't do that. We see him that James here seems to be very humble. He's not lording these things over the brethren, but he comes to them as really a fellow servant with them. Any minister worth his salt, so to speak, is a nothing more, in a sense, but a fellow servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, along with all the other brethren of the Lord. We are all servants of Christ. We are all servants of God. And, put it more into practical application, we are all servants of one another. Brethren, all of us as believers fit this description. We are servants of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not truly disciples of Christ. We are not true Christians if we are not servants of God. And I don't mean you serve God your way and it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks or what the Bible says. We're not seek teaching or implying that at all. We're saying you're Christ's disciples because you follow Christ, and you are His servants because you serve Him in accordance to the Word of God. Not accordance to, like the 
the men there in Judah. Oh, tell me all about what God has to say. Go to Jeremiah. Go to the Lord. Go to Jehovah and tell, ask Him what is the news for us. And whatever it is, we are going to follow it. It doesn't matter. We're going to be faithful men. And of course, that's not what happened, was it? And that's the way some professing Christians are. Yes, I'm a believer. Oh, yeah. Tell me what the Bible says. Oh, wait a minute. It says that? Then forget it. It means I am to love my wife and love and patience and watch over her and tend to her and nurture her. Well, then never mind. Oh, you mean I am to submit to my husband and obey him and to seek to please him in all things? My desires are now his desires? Or his desires are my desires? Oh, I got that wrong again. Well, then as I say, forget it. I don't want to hear it. You mean I am to go to my employer and treat him as I'm to treat the Lord and respect him as I'm to respect the Lord? Well, then forget it. You see, that's how some professing Christians are. They sound and look good on the outside, but within their hearts, they're dissembling themselves. They lie to themselves and they're not servants to anyone but self. And self will go a long way if self can have its way. And that's the way many folks are. Just don't cross my will and I'll be happy. I'll do what the Bible says. I'll be submissive to my husband. I'll be submissive to my workplace. I'll be loving to my wife. I'll obey my parents. I'll pray. All these things I'll do until they cross my will. And then it's goodbye God. And that's how some of us are. Isn't it? And how shame, what a shame it's going to be that we wake up in hell. Because all this time, we had dissembled in our hearts the reality of these things. This is no game. This is not a, a toy to play with. This is the Word of God that we're all going to be accountable. Jesus said it will be the very thing that will judge us in the last day. So how careful then we need to be. Fifthly, we can see to whom. We don't have to. That's another easy one, sort of. It's James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To, we see now to whom the epistle is addressed. To the twelve tribes that would mean the twelve tribes of Israel, which are scattered abroad. So we see here something of their description. They are the twelve tribes, but also that they are scattered abroad. Now, what does he mean by this? Scattered abroad. Well, this too can have several, or several answers behind it. One, there was a dispersion, you remember, in the Old Testament. In the days of uh, with the Assyrians coming and the Babylonians coming and just a few years later, we see there was a dispersion then of the Jews going out. We see that also perhaps would be the reason why in Acts chapter 1 and 2, there was this a great amount of people coming in from out of state, as it were, and visiting there at the temple because they had been scattered abroad. Or it could mean a dispersion that took place in the early Roman days when they took the city of Jerusalem to begin with. Some say that there was a dispersion then at that point. 
Thirdly, there was also the dispersion that took place during the early church, even in the book of Acts. Paul himself had a hand in that, you remember. And the Jews going in other places. And then there's also the possibility, you remember, and I think it's in Romans, where the Jews were told to leave Rome. In other words, it's a possibility, some have suggested, that they were told to leave all the major points of the Roman Empire. Thus, they would have had to have left Jerusalem, and thus there would have been a dispersion in that sense. And then there is the last dispersion that we are aware of anyway, and that would be the one that took place in 70 A.D. When Titus came in with the Roman army, he leveled the temple and the city, and he carted off slave people and deported them, and they left themselves. And so those are the particular dispersions that could be spoken of here. But they are nonetheless, whoever or whatever the situation is, they are scattered abroad. And in any circumstance and any time, the point of this was it shows something of the hardship that they were going through. These were folks who were being tried, who were being tested. And that's the purpose here, it seems to be, of the dispersion. They were scattered abroad. I'm sure they would like to have been back in their homeland. They may have had some roots, yes, where they're at. But again, they're still known as the twelve tribes scattered abroad. There's something about that phrase, something about that designation of those brethren that it stuck with them. That they are people who are scattered abroad. Another thing we can say of these folks who it is addressed to is that they're Christians. At least in the main. They are Christians. Notice chapter 1, verse 18. He says, Of His own will begot He us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. So here we see... He's talking about the new birth and how that they too were made partakers of it, along with James. So then we could put two and two together and we'd say that this is speaking of Christians. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Here, the name of Christ is mentioned in there. In fact, that's the last time, I believe, that his name is mentioned in this epistle. And then also, they, they're called throughout this epistle, brethren or my brethren by James throughout. So again, these are the kind of little hints that would make us realize that this is probably and most likely written to Christians. Now, I say all that to recognize because we're going, when we get into verse 2, he's going to be talking about their trial and how that they need to be counting all this as joy because of the temptations they're in. But the point of this is, though, is that Christianity in the early stages of it did have its hardships. It did have its afflictions. So it was no easy lot to be a Christian in that day. So, you know, we have the toleration here in America, quote, religious uh, freedom of religion. We're not too much pestered maybe by the laughs and the jeers of others. But as far as our government is concerned, uh, they don't come in and arrest us necessarily. Our neighbors are not breaking down our doors, ratting on us and uh, hauling us off or even taking us down and beating us and those sort of things. That just isn't happening at this point in our lives, in our generation. But that was not true of the early church. That was taking place. 
There was hardships. There was persecution. There were sorrows. There were afflictions. And to be a Christian was that you were going to put on that badge of persecution. You were going to be a fellow servant and a fellow sufferer with Christ Jesus. Remember in Romans, as we were talking about the reason that Paul is doing what he's saying there in the latter part of Romans 8 is because he recognizes that we as Christians, as believers, yea, those who have been predestinated unto eternal life and those whom even Christ has died for, yet, and we're all justified, all those things, those privileges that we have. And he goes on to say, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. The life of the early Christian was one of suffering. So, you know, I don't want to belittle any type of suffering, uh, affliction that we go through now, because if we are persecuted, we do have afflictions. They're nonetheless real. We shouldn't take from them. We should uh, recognize them. And, and, and But in comparison... Uh, they're not really the same, are they? I realize it's relative. I understand that. But again, if we were to be transported, as it were, back into the first century, we would learn then something of hardship. We would learn something of affliction and persecution and bodily harm. Losing property. Losing loved ones. And again, I know it happens in other parts of the world. But in particular, in the early church, and a Jew for that matter, it was even sometimes harder because they had not only the Gentiles after them, but their own countrymen. And at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14, For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. In other words, the Jewish people who had come to Christ have been suffering at the hands of their fellow countrymen, their Jewish brethren. It would be like Americans turning on Christians, even though we are Americans, fellow Americans. But because we are belong to Christ, because we're walking in that narrow road that leads unto eternal life, then people will note that, they will be disgusted with that, and they will hate us for that very holiness and to whom we serve, and thus they will turn on us. Again, we're not seeing that today, at least in the measure that they saw it in the first century. So you can easily see then why he's going to get into verse 2 right away. Because these are brethren who are scattered, who are suffering hardship and afflictions. Sixthly, we see what we would call the salutation there in the last part of verse 1, greeting. That's it. Notice that. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, comma, greeting. Hello. That thing. Now, we may say, well, that sounds kind of curt. And that just doesn't surprise me, James being the kind of man he is. I can see him giving a very curt answer here. But actually, if you take the time to read the next few verses, we see James not a very, he's not curt at all. He's very kind. He's very gentle. He's very caring. He's very warm. And he's encouraging. 
But sometimes we can hone in on one particular aspect of something or someone and come away with a total different aspect of them, can't we? What are they here? What has he seen about? Well, if you just stopped at verse 1, he seems like a man who doesn't, who doesn't mince with words, and he doesn't as far as you read the rest of the epistle. But I mean, he doesn't seem friendly. Oh, but then look at verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. He begins immediately to exhort them and to comfort them and to speak of the joy they ought to have because they're in these particular trials and situations. And by the way, he's not sitting in some ivory tower. He too is aware of these things because they're happening to him back in Jerusalem. One of his fellow brethren were put to death. His namesake, so to speak. James was put to death in Acts 12. They were the ones who were being beaten. Remember in Acts 4. So he is a man who can sympathize. Though he has a very curt, as we would say, beginning here with him. So he can get the wrong impression very quickly. And then I'm only going to get so far with this point here. This is where we'll take up in the main next time. And that's what we would call the theme or the purpose of this epistle. The theme or the purpose. Let me say very quickly... I think there are various themes. There's not really just one theme in this epistle. But because of Acts, or because of James chapter 2 becoming, as it were, the center point of all this, everyone else has kind of forgot that James said anything else in this epistle. Because of this so-called, that people have brought up, this conflict between Paul and James, that has seemed to have been the center place of everything that James has been saying and will say. And if you... Actually, if you were to step back a little bit and examine the epistle a little bit more closely and get the right idea of what he is actually saying in James chapter 2, you'll see there are many themes in reality that this is speaking upon. But if we were going to sum it up into a particular theme, we would say there is much, we would call it Christian virtue, Christian integrity, Christian uprightness, uh, being sincere, real, what it means to live a Christian life, living holy, holy living. And again, let me just say just a little bit about that issue of James 2. Some have vainly imagined that James is correcting Paul here. Or that there is somehow a conflict or a contradiction between Paul and James, or worse, the Bible between the Bible. Books of the Bible against the book of the Bible. Because James says in James chapter 2, for instance, uh, even so faith, verse 17, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Well, we don't disagree with that at all. Uh, verse 19, thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Uh, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac upon his son upon the altar? See that thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith that Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Well, people have taken that and they've run uh, wild with it, missing the very context of what the apostle, of what James is actually saying. And now we'll get into more, 
more of this when we get into James 2, chapter 2. But let me just say here now, there is no real contradiction in what James and Paul are saying. There is no contradiction whatsoever. What is really taking place here is that they are both talking about two different issues. And so thus, James will say it this way. Paul will say it another way because there are two different things here that are at stake. Yes, entering into the Christian life, being justified, is by faith alone apart from works. That's Paul's point. That is not James's point. And again, when we get into this in a few weeks, we'll see that it's not any real, actually, it ain't even a contradiction at all as far as that goes. I'm convinced, well, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that they're not contradicted because Scripture can't. Both can't be right here. And so we just know from the beginning already, from the get-go, that James is not contradicting Paul and Paul is not contradicting James. So they are saying two different things and that's why it's read two different ways. So, so, but from this, though, some see this epistle only speaking about the evidences of faith. And James, they say, is writing to correct the problem of faith without works. And so they see this book then more of a, a book dealing with polemics rather than what I think it is, a book dealing with Christian life and holiness and Christian integrity and that sort of thing. Now, to be sure, it is correcting the belief that a man can be saved and have no works. That's not true at all. But there are other great themes that are found throughout this book, such as, for instance, verse 2, joy. How about that? So already, at the very beginning, we're faced with a teaching or a doctrine dealing with joy. We're faced immediately with the doctrine or the teaching of affliction and trial and Christian growth, patience, prayer, verse 5. He speaks of uh, regeneration in verse 18. Real religion in verse 26 and 27. Then chapter 2 obviously is dealing with faith that does work. Chapter 3, about the tone. Chapter 4, something of indwelling sin and and lack of prayer. Chapter 5, again, faith, the coming of Christ, trials and adversities again. And we miss all of that because we've we've let somebody get us all stirred up about James 2. And we're too busy trying to defend Paul against James and James against Paul when there's really no need. They are brethren in the Lord. And they're both preaching and teaching a true gospel. So there are many themes. And we'll get to that next week. But let me read Manton. He had a very good point. Now, let me give my little speech about quoting people. Because uh, I do this every so often. And I need to do it again because we're going to start something new. But... Uh, when I quote someone, it isn't because I necessarily agree with everything they say, so don't come flying up here after church. And then secondly, I don't quote folks because I believe it somehow proves a point. Don't come flying up here after church telling me that, because I don't believe either one. I can't prove, again, I don't take, infall- I don't take fallible men to prove infallible propositions. All I'm saying here is an illustration. So when I quote folks, it's mainly to illustrate a point. 
And uh, Thomas Manton at this point illustrates something of the theme and the purpose of James very well. Let me read it to you. I think he did a very good job with this. He says, we are all apt to divorce comfort from duty. Isn't that true? We are all apt to divorce or separate comfort from duty and to content ourselves with a barren and unfruitful knowledge of Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1.8 As if all that he required of the world were only a few naked, cold, and inactive apprehensions of his merit. And all things were so done for us that nothing remained to be done by us. This is the wretched conceit of many in the present age. I would say even today, wouldn't you? That was written 400 years ago. He says uh, that nothing remains. This is the wretched conceit of many in the present age. And therefore, either they abuse the sweetness of grace to looseness or the power of it to laziness. Christ's merit and the Spirit's efficacy are the commonplace from whence they draw all the defenses and excuses of their own wantonness and idleness, sin and laziness. It is true, God hath opened an excellent treasure in the church to defray the debts of, hum- debts of humble sinners and to bear the expenses of the saints to heaven. But there is nothing allowed to wanton or sinful prodigals who spend freely and sin lavishly upon the mere account of the riches of grace. As in your charitable bequests, when you leave monies in the way of a stock, it is to encourage men in an honest calling not to feed riot and excess. In other words, God hasn't given these rich pleasures, uh, rich privileges that we have in Christ Jesus for us to spend on ourselves and to be foolish and lazy and sinful. He uses the illustration. It's like someone who is rich. He says, you don't save up that money and put it in an account somewhere for that bum to come on later and spend it. He says, you save it for folks who are going to use it wisely and thriftly and in holy reasons and purposes. And this is what Manton sees then as the, the uh, overall arching theme as it were, to this epistle. This epistle gives life and it gives comfort to those who are walking in Christ Jesus. Well, let me make some closing applications. I didn't realize it was going to take this long. First of all, you notice the beginning we mentioned the author and we said it may have been James, the Lord's brother. Again, we may think, oh boy, what a great privilege it must have been. What a great blessing it must be to be the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. Well, if you think about that a moment, if you remember, his brothers and his sisters didn't believe him. They did not believe on him at the very beginning. They too made fun of him. They too mocked him. They too distrusted what he was saying. Secondly, just because someone was related by... um, whatever relation, that uh, physical relation to Christ, that in and of itself is not saving. You could be the Lord's half-brother and never have grace. See, there's no blessing in being physically related 
to Christ in that sense. Thirdly, the true blessing is our spiritual relationship to Christ. That's where true blessings derive from. And Jesus told them that as much in Matthew chapter 12. You remember his sisters and his brothers and his mother wanted to come see him. And he's speaking at a crowd and really he says, nope. Uh, you know, they press their way up and they send word to him. And this is how he responds. He says in verse 46, while I yet talk, this is Matthew 12, while I yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without, desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Brother, behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. So what's better of a blessing? To be physically related to Christ or spiritually related to Christ? Even some woman said, oh, blessed be the paps that you sucked when you were just a little boy. He says, nay, blessed who hear and obey the word of God. Just because you marry doesn't make you blessed. It's obedience in the Christian walk that blesses. Salvation in Christ, believing the gospel, becoming the children of God, as Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, chapter 3 and verse 26, by faith. That's where the true blessing lies. Secondly, there's no disgrace in being a servant of the Lord. Now, if this was the James that's spoken of there in Galatians, chapter 2, you remember he's called a pillar of of the church. No, he wasn't a deacon. That's what some deacons think they are. Pillars of the church. I've even actually heard them use that term or that phrase. But no, they were apostles. The apostles were the pillars of the church. But even though, let's just say then that's James that had spoken of here that wrote this. If he was truly that apostle or that man there in Galatians where it's spoken of as a pillar, he didn't think there was any disgrace and being numbered as a servant. You know, a lot of people think they got to have a title. they got to have a name before they can truly serve God. It's just not so. Being a servant as a servant is enough. You know, David said he would rather be a doorkeeper at the house of God. Just someone who would watch and keep the door. He wasn't looking for any high office. He was humbled. And if he was a doorkeeper, he was faithful in that office. He didn't just want the name. The title. I'm the official doorkeeper. My little badge on my shirt says I'm doorkeeper. Here on my crown, look, doorkeeper. See that? Doorkeeper. Now, look, doorkeeper. So, you want you to know, I'm the doorkeeper here. I mean, that's how people want. They won't serve unless they're being served. Isn't that sad? 
You see, a true servant serves whether he's ever served or not. In fact, that's what makes him a servant, is that he serves. And the servant that's spoken of in this light was a bond slave. No rights, no voice. They're just considered what? Even when we've done everything that we ought to have done, Jesus said, we should just still cry out, we are unprofitable servants. And this is where James ranks himself here. Steps down, as it were. If he was an apostle, great. But he calls himself here a servant. Remember Paul, who certainly had much to boast about it, in humanly speaking. But remember he said he counted all things loss and all things dung that he may win Christ. Thirdly, we can see from this very first verse that God does have great care for His children, His afflicted children who are scattered all over the world. You say, how do you, how do you know that? Because He moves James to write this epistle to them. There are people who are thought of as of the off-scouring of the world. Remember, that's how Paul, he said that that's how people view me. But God doesn't. God views us in Christ Jesus, even though as afflicted people, someone to tend to, care for, and even be afflicted with them. In all of their afflictions, he says, I was afflicted with them. What a grace. What grace. What a Savior. So if you're going through affliction here this morning, will be, let me assure you this morning that as a believer, God still cares for you. And thus you should cast all your care upon Him. Fourthly, it is a blessing to serve the Lord even through afflictions. Notice what he says. Count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. It's a blessing to serve God even though we have... But again, we have that mentality, I have afflictions and thus I can slack back on my serving because I've got excuses now not to serve. I'm going through some terrible trial. I've got this. I've got that. No, actually you don't. What you have are more incentives to serve God. Not less because of trials. More because of trials. Again, count it all joy. Afflictions, as we were discussing in our class yesterday, are means of growing holy. If God's blessings is upon them. And then lastly, let me say this. That we enter into all of this, brethren, not by works of our own. We don't enter into salvation. We don't enter into joy. We don't enter into any of these relationships with our Lord. Any of this kind of stuff. Apart and but only in the new birth. And that is by sovereign grace. Look here in verse 18. Or, yeah, 18. Of His own will... Begot he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Jesus told Nicodemus, You must be born again, or you'll never see the kingdom of God. You'll never enter into these things that we'll be speaking in the next few months as we go into the book of James. You won't even get close. 
They're not for you apart from the new birth in Jesus Christ. Again, that is only by the grace of Almighty God. I set forth to you this morning Christ and Him crucified. Believe Him. Believe upon Him unto eternal life. Turn from your sins and flee from mercy that's only found in Him.